Um, so, we're on steps eight and nine tonight, and uh, as I like to read the steps. Step eight says, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And step nine says, we made direct amends to such people. Wow, I left out some words. We made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So, as I said earlier, this is, uh, there's a very clear instructions in these steps, which are certainly important in the recovery process. Um, if we uh, have these uh, relationships that are unresolved and uh, guilt and shame hanging over us, uh, it, it can really be a problem, certainly in our recovery process, uh, to, to stay sober. Uh, and, it, you know, I, ironically enough, the person that I had to make the biggest amends to when I got sober was my brother Michael, who I mentioned earlier, <laughs> just became a father today. Um, I had been responsible for him getting arrested for uh, drug possession, and he didn't use drugs. But uh, he owned the house where I was living, uh, and I happened to duck out the night before the police decided to raid it. And so he went through a long uh, legal struggle, and I got off scot-free. So, yeah, I had to call him up one day in uh, the fall of 1986 and say, I'm sorry. He's been very good about that. But, uh, but uh, as I said earlier, the, this, this process, I don't think, um, stops with, with that first amends that we make based on our um, inventory. I was uh, looking at some of my own writing, as I do uh, for this class sometimes, and looking at uh, one breath at a time, and uh, there's a few things in there that I think are worth highlighting tonight. Um, first of all, just uh, once again, to the, something I talked about last week about steps six and seven, that with steps eight and nine, once again we divide up the willingness or the intention from the action itself. And, and again, this really goes with the Buddhist idea that intention is what informs the results of our actions. So it's very important that we get clear about our intention. And it also uh, means that with, this, uh, with these steps that we can make a, a complete list of everyone we harm, but we don't have to uh, we necessarily make amend, actual amends to each of them, but that it's important to make the list. Uh, and one of the things that Bill Wilson talks about is how this list shows us the pattern of our lives, uh, that we can get insight into the pattern of our lives, how the people we harmed, what that tells us. Um, And one of the things that I realized as I was doing this process and when I've done the forgiveness and loving-kindness practices is that the people I harmed were very often the people that I loved. And the people that harmed me were often the people that loved me. I mean, sure, there were the people who were, there was just a resentment or there was some conflict, but really the ones that, where the biggest struggles were, were those people who were closest to me. And as I reflect on that, I think about 
what happens when I am intimate with people, what happens in relationships with people I love, is that that's, those are the people with whom I'm the most vulnerable. And so those are the people that I get love from, but I'm also vulnerable to, to their confusion, their pain, their fear, all the things that the forgiveness meditation talks about. And they are vulnerable to me as well. They open themselves up to me. And when I act out of my own fear, confusion, neurosis, whatever you want to call it, I harm them. And this is what's so complicated and difficult about our intimate relationships. We wonder, at least I wonder at times, why I struggle, why I have the conflicts that I have with the people that I love. And, and I think this is very much what it's about. Uh, we, we, make our, we make ourselves vulnerable, and, but at the same time, I don't think we want to be vulnerable. So there's, there's an inherent fear in intimacy for many of us, that as we open up, we're afraid that something is going to happen, maybe that that person is going to control us, or that they're not going to behave the way we want them to, the, uh, the things that come up. And, and so even as we're opening up, we're closing down. And there's this complicated play, this dance that goes on in our relationships. And, and perhaps there's a tendency to judge ourselves or to judge our partner or to judge relationships without maybe having a broader view that, that maybe this is just an expression of a, 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 hu- an, a natural, in some ways, human conflict, a sort of natural, a built-in element of intimacy. Um, I don't know. These are really just reflections that, that I don't have answers to exactly, but that I just want to put out to people to think about for yourselves, and maybe you can find answers. But that list itself can be very uh, enlightening for us, can really give us some insight when we look at that. Um, I will say that uh, on a practical note, uh, from time to time, and not, not too long ago, someone asked me about making an amends to someone who they had been in a relationship with, but they'd broken up years before. And they, and they got sober and they started thinking about them and they started thinking about how guilty they felt about what had happened. And as I talked to this person about this situation, it became clear that partly they wanted to be in touch with this person and that it wasn't just wanting to make amends. And that when I asked them what they thought what they thought the result would be, how the person would feel about them making amends, they admitted that it would probably just bring up painful memories for them. This is one of the things that's very difficult about amends when we feel guilt and we feel that we'd, we'd really like to call the person and say, I'm really sorry I was such a jerk. And, but if you play that out in your mind... Where does that go that's helpful? <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, you were a jerk, and I'd rather forget about that. Most times, you know, I, I, there's, again, there's no hard and fast rule. But uh, we really have to be careful. Are we making amends for ourselves, or are we making it for them? You know, 
the alcoholics and addicts who tend to be self-centered, you know, tend to want to make the amends for themselves. And that is not what the amends is supposed to be for. Not, not the external amends. I think there are amends that we need to do for ourselves, and I will talk about that. But I think we need to be very clear that if we are con- contacting someone who has not been in touch with us, that we are really risking causing them more harm just by bringing it up, unless there's something we can specifically do that's going to actually make up for it. That's my advice, which I always try to be careful about that. To connect this process to the meditative process, just to point out that if you ever try to get, well, it's not only the case that on retreat this stuff comes up, but particularly if you go on a meditation retreat, your whole life comes up at some point if you stay on a retreat long enough. I mean, it just kind of plays out. And this is something that the the Spirit Rock teachers, I've noticed, have now started to integrate into their teachings. It used to be, at least my experience of it, was that it used to be if you start, were on a long retreat and you started to go off into a long kind of internal thing where you're struggling about your past and thinking about your past, if the teacher found out, if you told them, they'd say, just drop that and come back, you know, just don't get into that. But I have heard teachers say nowadays, they talk about a life review. And I think they've started to see that this is actually an organic part of the process, uh, of the meditative process, as we try to go deep. We can say that... uh, one way to describe the meditative process is that the, the opening stages, the opening innings, this is opening day today, I can talk about, ba- use baseball metaphors, the opening innings are about your stuff and letting go of your stuff. So there's kind of, you're working on the personal level. But as we get deeper into the game and deeper into the process, that we move more into the impersonal, into just the land of dharma, into impermanence, into not-self, into insight, into uh, suffering, uh, opening the heart into loving-kindness. In order to move past the personal part, we need to kind of clean that stuff up, or it keeps coming up in our face. So just in terms of a meditative process, doing amends is helpful for allowing us to move into the deeper stages of meditation. So, where do I want to go? I know I want to talk about amends to the self, so uh, let me go right to that, because that's what's kind of coming up for me. There's some other things. There's really, I mean, this is another part of the process where I talked about, that I talked about last week, which is that when I look at these steps, I think, well, there's just this and this. Like, how am I going to talk about that? And then the more I look at it, what the process is implying, the richer and richer it becomes. And then it becomes quite elaborate because we, we could spend the whole evening just talking about the promises. And I will try to get to the promises as a, as a topic. But I'd like to talk about amends for ourselves. particularly because this isn't something that's addressed very much in the 12-step world or in the 12-step literature. And 
my feeling is that if we aren't kind to ourselves and if we don't enrich our own lives and bring goodness into our own lives and, and work towards our own happiness, that we're going to have a hard time staying in recovery, staying clean and sober. And what's the point anyway <laughs> if we're going to be miserable? And if you've been around the program for a while, you've seen those people you know, who kind of make recovery into a slog. You know. And yeah, there are parts of it that are a slog, that are hard. It's not easy to write uh, inventory and to, and to make amends and go through this process. And there are times in anyone's life when there are challenges, when there's pain. But if the gist of our life isn't, if the gist isn't the right word, if the kind of thrust of our lives isn't towards something worth living, then why are we getting sober? So I'm really a great believer that, that um, you know, that expression, happy, joyous, and free, is something we want to at least incline our minds towards. Um, so this uh, one book, which uh, uh, James Barris actually uh, used to teach from before he wrote his own book on happiness, uh, called How We Choose to Be Happy, it gives some very helpful and direct uh, instructions about um, how to cultivate happiness. Uh, you know, this is, uh, these days, I mean, there's probably dozens of books now on how to be happy, and this can... It can seem kind of trivial into the, uh, particularly if you live in Berkeley, you know, these kind of uh, dour intellectuals you know, and cynical, it's like, oh, you know, how trivial, you know, just trying to be happy. I've got more important things to do, like my existential angst. I've got to work on that. <laughs> but if we can really see this just as a sensible thing to do, you know, and and hopefully not to be to be treated superficially. That this is this can have some meaning and some depth. Uh, that I think it's it can be helpful to uh, do some intentional practices that cultivate happiness. So I'll take you through these four aspects. The, the how we choose to be happy has nine suggestions for uh, sort of how happy the things that happy people tend to do, that what they identify as happy people. But uh, just without going through them all, the first one is intention. So, so the, the idea that, oh, I should actually try to be happy, <laughs> you know, rather than I'll do all this stuff and I hope that happiness will result from it, or rather to think, oh, well, how about if I let happiness kind of be the goal and see if the other stuff will take care of itself? another process. It's kind of like, uh, you know, I used to think, if I get my life together, then I'll stop drinking and using. And then I found out that if I stopped drinking and using, I actually got my life together. So it was that, that kind of flipping the process. So really setting your intention to be happy. And the second one, which is very much in harmony with 12-step principles, accountability. Not blaming someone else for the fact that you're happy. You made me feel this way. How did that person make you feel that? Yeah, Yeah, they did something and you you reacted or uh, it triggered something in you that you got unhappy, but uh, they can't actually control, uh, go into your body and go and, you know, turn on the unhappiness. 
So that, again, means it's about turning and looking towards ourselves. So what's my part uh, in my unhappiness, if that's what I'm dealing with? Um, and what power do I have to make myself happy? I'm, you know, yeah, I can say I'm powerless over some stuff, but I'm not powerless over everything. I can make decisions. What can I do? The third one has been really important for me, identification. One of the ways to do this is just make a list of everything that makes you happy, from chocolate and teddy bears to uh, AA meetings and three-month meditation retreats or, you know, riding your bike or, uh, um, you know, from this trivial to the serious, because the trivial is, is important too. Why not enjoy the little things? Uh, that was the, it was making that list that uh, inspired my, uh, my golf uh, excursion. I can't wait to play now because I'm thinking the golf course might not just be mud this week. So it's the first time in months I might actually be able to find my ball. Um, so this is a great one, and I really recommend that if you don't do any of these, that you just do this. Just write down a list of everything that turns you on, you know, music, sex, you know. Uh, obviously, there might be some things on there that you've given up, so you <laughs> put, put them in the sidebox. Love it, but don't do it anymore, you know. Uh, and then centrality is the fourth one, which is... Um, Kind of going back to intention again, and it's, uh, but the making the commitment to actually do this stuff and bringing these things into your life, that, that every day you do some of the things that are on your list. That it's not just, oh, there's a nice list, yeah, well, I'll get to that one day. No, that you really, you're accountable, you're going to do it, you're actually going to live these principles. Who did we harm when we were out there? Who did we harm more than ourselves? We, most of us harmed others, but I don't think many of us harmed anyone more than we harmed ourselves on a daily basis. What we did to our, to our bodies, to our minds, to our spirits, the way we abused ourselves with substances, with negative thought, with foolish behaviors. So we really need to take care of ourselves. If we want to recover, we need to recover ourselves, recover our joy, recover our happiness. That's, and that's just one approach, that's just one suggestion. Uh, as I was saying to this young woman who was interviewing me today, really don't like to put out the idea that I am teaching you the way to work the steps or that I'm giving you the, some system. Much more than I'm just trying to frame this and, and inspire you to do your own contemplation and your own exploration and find your own way that this stuff makes sense for you. 
Does it make sense for you to make amends for yourself? Maybe, maybe not. Does it make sense for you to make a list like this? Maybe, maybe not. But that you think about these things, and if it makes sense for you to make amends to yourself, then maybe trying this. And if that's not working, think about, well, what do you need to do for you? What would be healing for you? I think I, I, it kind of feels like I'd like to open it up a little bit at this point and then at the, um, try to have time for, to talk a little bit about the, uh, the promises before the end of the evening. So are there any, has anything come up for anyone uh, that they would like to share or um, ask or at this point? Yeah. Um, one thing that came up uh, was just in this last part when um, uh, when you were talking about the how we choose to be happy and the accountability and uh, you went into saying that um, you know somebody can't crawl inside you and take your happiness and I find that difficult to, because I came from a, a domestic violence situation right. and in that case someone did crawl inside and take yeah, my happiness. in a way yeah yeah and so. Um, you know, it might be hard to make somebody happy, but it's not terribly hard for some people to make others sad. Hmm. Yeah. Well, certainly when we're talking about children, uh, it's a different situation. Yeah. Well, this uh, was as an adult. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I this is why I, I guess uh, I... I try to catch myself from making absolute statements, but I can't, I guess, completely keep myself from doing that. I, I, um, also, I, I, I also want to interject that I realize too that now that I'm away from that situation and I'm, um, I'm clean and sober for one, and I'm able to take more responsibility for my own happiness. And that means just avoiding those, you know, those people, those kind of situations. So, you know, by staying safe, you know, I, I'm choosing happiness over, yeah, you know, those other situations. It's always been a dilemma when, you know, uh, for me when it comes to forgiveness. That person came up into my mind about uh, forgiving, and uh, to a certain extent. I can can forgive, mm-hmm. you know, and forget and loosen, let go, and drop it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but the minute that person starts yelling at me again, all the walls go up. You mean yelling at you literally or li- literally? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, th- th- there's a difference between forgiveness and being a doormat, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, and it absolutely that it's. This isn't about condoning behavior or, or saying, oh, well, you know, I should just let them do this. No, I mean, getting out of the situation is definitely vital as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, we're not, there's no way we can, uh, well, uh, again, I don't, don't want to make absolute statements, but we're, we really, if we're going to recover ourselves, yeah, I mean, we, we need to be out of situations that are abusive. There's no doubt. And and many of us are conditioned to place ourselves into abusive 
relationships. You know, people who are children of alcoholics, you know, that's what we know. That's, what, that's what's familiar to us, and so that's what we incline towards. Part of the really important part of the recovery process is, is seeing the ways that we allow ourselves to keep repeating the same uh, patterns that we were conditioned in as children that, that create pain for us. And it can be hugely disruptive to the personality to make that change because it's, it's what we know. It's almost, it's, it, it's where we feel safe. It feels right, but it's all wrong. <laughs> and at a certain point, we see that and then we have to wean ourselves from that. We have to break those habits and it has to be very intentional and with a very strong determination. Yeah, I made that determination. It wasn't it my an experience of you know, of being uh, uh, being accustomed to that kind of behavior. I was actually blindsided by it. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, "Where the heck? Is, what the heck?" I didn't really really realize what was happening to me for a long time. I thought, "Oh well, he just lost his temper, or he's just in a bad mood, or he's ma- mad about money, or you know, all these excuses for the behavior." Or what it took me years to realize, "Oh my God, this is abuse." Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, you know, I'm really glad I'm out of that. I'm really glad I'm clean and sober, you know. And, but, you know, I, I do remember um, just doing a lot of work on, on uh, just letting go of it, you know, letting go of it because there would never, would never be an apology coming from this person. Mm-hmm. And well, I, can, I can forgive him, you know, to, like I say, to a certain extent, and I'm working on that because the more I let go, the freer I am. Mm-hmm. So that's all I have. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've always disliked that saying Abraham Lincoln says, you know, everyone can be as happy as they make up their mind to be. Yeah. And I was always like, oh, yeah, right, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, being in the program or around the program for a while, I've realized that, and I think I can say the we, the plural, we alcoholics are extremely hypersensitive people. Mm-hmm. I know I am. And um, I'm finding out more and more as I stick around here that um, there are certain people that I need to take distance from and certain people that I allow to let in. Mm-hmm. And um, and that that I don't have to take everything personally. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. um, so it's not not really the form of a question, but I think that the hypersensitivity can be turned into a positive because we are people who become meditators yeah. and uh, and are able to go inward. So I have struggled with that because I've gotten my feelings hurt so many times. Yeah. And I want, I don't want that, <laughs> you right. know. So um, I guess that's all I want to say about it. Yeah. Well, a couple things have come up and I'll, from me, and I'll, you, you can pass the microphone maybe over here in the meantime. But, um, one is that how we define happy is important. Uh, it doesn't mean we're ecstatic all the time. You know, when I, when I was drinking and using, I thought happy meant that I felt good all the time. Happiness isn't a feeling. It's, I mean, there's a feeling associated with it. That's part of it. But happiness is more of a general state. 
know, that are, and it, it's a sense of, in, of uh, an integrated life, a life that kind of makes sense, that, that, is, that is fulfilling for us, and, um, and has moments of, you know, joy in it, but that's not the whole, that's not what happiness means, being joyful all the time. Um, and interestingly enough, I have discovered that you can be depressed and happy um, because depression is different from happiness. Depression is a, is a I'll, I'll just call it a mental illness. Or, you know, it's if you got a big physical component, but we'll just call it a mental illness for shorthand, if you will accept that. But uh, there, when I went through a, a period of real challenging with de- in depression uh, in sobriety not that long ago, um, at one point I realized that I was happy with my life. I liked my life. There wasn't anything wrong with it, but I was in a depression. And it was just, that was when I realized I needed medical help because there wasn't, I was, I was living in a way that it was great. There wasn't anything, I couldn't point at anything that was, uh, but that was not working in my life. But, so uh, I say that so that people don't, because the, the Abraham Lincoln kind of statement, you can be as happy as you choose to be, yes, and there's a thing called depression, <laughs> which right. doesn't have anything to do with your choice. Right. It's, it's much more biological and, and so deeply conditioned that you don't have much choice in it. You can bring yourself out of it for moments, but it's just... It's just like a subterranean river that's just running through your life for at, at times. So uh, I think it's important to distinguish those things, that I'm not talking about a cure for depression when I talk about uh, cultivating happiness. So. Um, two things. Uh, one, I really like the the way you're framing an understanding of the idea of an amends. Um, as distinct from, you know, becoming ready to say you're sorry once and then moving mm-hmm. on with your life. Um, I was given to understand in the beginning that an amendment of, of the Constitution or a contract changes the nature of the thing itself. And so mm-hmm. the amendment is really the behavior you have going forward in your life that you don't do those things anymore that led you to making whatever it is the mistake you're making mm-hmm. an amends for. Um, and in living that process, um, uh, I didn't get myself back, actually. Um, I got somebody else back, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's actually it's it's a better thing. Yeah, yeah. It's a better thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I had had it in my mind that, you know, I know that you're leading towards the promises, but that, that uh, you know, what kind of the sense of that was that I was going to get my life back, you know, the way it was. And yeah, yeah. I'm kind of yeah. glad I didn't in some yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, and I, I also, I guess I think of, the, of someone kind of sewing up, mending a sock or mending a shirt and something that was, that was torn or was damaged and kind of sewing it up so that it's, it works again. You know, it's okay. It's mended. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, let me talk just a little bit about the promises just because it's kind of fun to look at the promises from a Buddhist 
viewpoint if I can claim to be doing that. I suppose I can. Um, the I know I should know what page it is, but I'm not one of those people. Okay, here we go. Um, first of all, well, I'll just read this section of the big book. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We'll suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Um, so it's a great, a great set of, uh, of promises, and whether it's true or not, uh, you can each determine for yourselves. I, I will say that um, one of the risks in taking language literally is that we miss even the author's uh, kind of uh, 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 idiomatic language and take it literally. So the phrase, before we are halfway through, does not literally mean <laughs> that exactly right before you are halfway through, we can guarantee this is going to ha happen. But it's really just trying to say that um, you don't necessarily have to get all get this whole thing done. It's 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 really by uh, setting it in motion that things start to change. A new freedom and a new happiness. I like that because it's just what you just said. It's not the old. It, my old idea of freedom and happiness were very different from my new idea of freedom and happiness. You know, I have a, a whole other, I, I didn't get my old life back. Thank God for that. You know, if you'll pardon the G word. Um, <laughs> we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Lovely. Um, very much what uh, the meditation process is meant to, to bring. No matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Um, well, uh, there's, I think it's a little bit split up, but uh, anyway, um, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. I think that... that phrase is one of the ones that rings the truest for me and that keeps coming back to me in my recovery work that and and of course i'm uniquely uh, um, blessed to have the opportunity 
to do that, to see that so often when I work with people. And of course, anybody who's working with people in recovery who's doing uh, sponsoring is seeing this. Uh, and it's really one of the great ironies. Uh, you know, I thought that um, I thought that the, st- that the promises had, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Is that there? Oh, it is. It's there before. So that's what I, that's what I was thinking about. This, these things are split for some reason, like uh, in terms of uh, editing. The phrase, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, seems like it should be followed by, no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our, benefit, our experience can benefit others. Because those are connected, but for some reason they stuck this other phrase, and some somebody can, you know, some big book genius can explain why. Anyway, that connection, uh, not regretting the past and wishing to shut the door, and what a gift that is. Many people, even not people in recovery, wish they could shut the door on their past, but we see that that past can be a benefit to others. How great is that? Because really, you think, oh my God, what a mess I've made in my life. And then you realize, wow, that's great. <laughs> it's great I made that mess in my life because now I can share it with other people. Now people who have made the same mess won't feel so alone. Now I can maybe even help other people to not make the same mess I've made. All of that, what an incredible gift. And it's, you know, that's one of those moments where you can be the grateful alcoholic, right? You can think, geez, you, you never thought, I mean, you might think, yeah, I'll get sober and I'll get my life straightened out. But did you ever think, oh, I'm going to look back and think, that was great. I did that. Oh, that Oh, that one was really good. Oh, yeah, that was great the way I smashed that car up. That was <laughs> so helpful. <you> know? <laughs> but it's true, that stuff. You know, every one of those messes that we made becomes something that we give to people. The feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Self-seeking will slip away. Losing interest in selfish things. All about letting go of self. All about letting go of ego. Um, and ego wor- working in both ways. The, the self-pity and uselessness are ego. That's negative ego, but it's still ego. Oh, I'm useless. Oh, poor me. It's just, uh, you know, that's really no different than... I'm so special, and you know, stand back because here I am. It's just more about me, and both of them need to be abandoned. Our whole out- attitude and outlook upon life will change. I mean, that, that's certainly my experience. My attitude and outlook about life is totally different. <laughs> Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. It's always important to note that they're talking about fear, not economic insecurity. (laughs) Economic insecurity may visit you, but the suggestion is that maybe you won't be as afraid of it. That's a big big, uh, statement. I I don't know if that's true of everybody. I don't know if if, uh, all of these are true for everybody. It seems unlikely, but... But I think that a lot of people have experienced a lot of these things. Um, 
we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. I feel like that's largely and kind of that's what the eleventh step talks about, and and um, you know that when we when our minds become more clear, when we start to when we've taken an inventory and seen our baggage and seen how our own minds worked and came to come to understand that the way our minds work are the way a lot of other people's minds work. A lot of intuition comes from that. We start to realize that we start to learn from our experience. I used to just feel that I had all these kind of separate experiences in my life. At about two years sober, when I, I woke up one morning and realized every time I go to bed, Every, every time I wake up in the morning, I remember going to sleep the night before, which was not true for many years, mm-hmm. that there started to be this continuous accumulation of experience that didn't keep getting interrupted by chemicals uh, shutting down my brain, and that that accumulation of experience was what's called wisdom. Now, the, uh, the way you get wisdom is by being alive and paying attention for a while. And the longer you're alive and pay attention, the more wisdom potentially you can develop. That's why it used to be that older people were respected. We don't have that anymore in our culture. But the, because if you, and, and of course the key there is the paying attention. If you're drinking and using, your, your mind isn't capable of paying attention in a consistent way, so it has a hard time connecting events, like why things happen and how things happen. So if we don't really see the stuff happening, so wisdom doesn't develop. Uh, realizing that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, well... I don't know if I want to address that question right now. Um, it all depends what you call God. Um, but I will say that for me, showing up and le- living in harmony with the law of karma is what may change things. Well, I was, well, my reactive, fear-driven ego was running the show. I couldn't get much done when I stopped running on that particular wavelength and listening to that channel and started to try to live in a way that was actually in harmony with how things work, which for me, the thing that I never was willing to do was to keep showing up on a continuous basis without getting what I wanted right away and actually develop, I guess you'd call it patience. So something like going to college in order to get a degree was just way beyond me because it would take a long time and I couldn't hang in through that because I wanted it immediately. If I couldn't just get the degree now, then... So that, to me, God was, you know, if you want to call... God wasn't doing that except that God was delivering the... If God is the law of karma, then the law of karma was delivering the, the um, diploma after I did my part, after I showed up. Anyway, this is way too complicated an idea to try to put all together in 30 seconds. Ah, so I have used up more than my allotted time with you.
I appreciate your patience. Uh, certainly enjoyed being with you again. Uh, we have a couple more weeks. Um, next week, April 8th, will be the Dharma and Recovery Group on Friday night. So we'll have a Thursday class, and then if you want to come back, uh, we'll have class or the other class on Friday. Um, if you're so inclined to practice loving-kindness practice as part of your daily practice, which I recommend, you might send some loving-kindness to my brother and his family now. He has a family. That's quite a step in his 63-year life. God bless him. So let's just close with a moment of silence. So thank you for showing up for yourselves, continuing to do this work, um, and thank you for your ongoing support through the Donna Bowl. Blessings. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.